I'm Jill Schlesinger, host of the Better Off Podcast. Today on the show, we're talking Federal Reserve. The Fed has two primary responsibilities. Uh, as the nation's central bank, indeed, uh, it is there to set monetary policy, essentially the level of interest rates to maximize employment and achieve price stability. Um, and secondly, they have enormous responsibility back to their inception to supervise uh, and regulate uh, major money center banks in the United States. So banking supervision and setting monetary policy. Welcome to the Better Off Podcast. We're sponsored by Betterment, the largest independent online financial advisor. Well, the first Fed meeting of the year where we have a change in interest rate policy. Here we go. It is the Jerome Powell Federal Reserve. They raised interest rates by a quarter of a percent, exactly what was expected. And this could be a year where there are not just three interest rate hikes. Maybe there'll be four. Maybe there'll be five or six. We don't know. It depends on the economy. But what exactly does the Fed have to do with your life what do you need to know about the Fed? Is the Fed truly independent? To find out, I've invited my oldest friend from growing up. His name is Mark Spindell. He co-wrote a book called The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. And Mark is going to explain everything you need to know about the Fed. So right now, it's my interview with my pal, Mark Spindell. You're listening to Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. Okay, special guest, first time ever, my oldest, dearest high school friend, Mark Spindell. Mark's parents and my parents are best friends. And as a result, we grew up together. We're essentially cousins more than anything else, right? That's about the right. 40 years at least. At least, yeah. So, Mark, we start the podcast off with a question. And that is, what is your best financial or career decision that you have made? In 2005, 2006, I was the deputy treasurer at the World Bank uh, and had been thinking, having been there for almost 10 years, uh, financial crisis had not yet happened, wasn't even a notion in many people's minds. And I thought about returning to the financial sector, uh, private sector, and interviewed with a number of large firms uh, who were very interested in the kind of macroeconomic, political, and policy process. And I kept holding out with this crazy idea that I could start my own investment management company. And you would talk to people, and they would say how speculative that is and how risky it was. And in retrospect, I think starting my own firm, which I ultimately did, I left the World Bank in 2006 to start Potomac River Capital, turned out to be the safest decision I could have made. And uh, the firms that I had been talking to, many of them were compromised by the uh, financial crisis. Two of them no longer exist. Uh, and yet having the kind of control in managing risk and making investment ideas autonomously for Potomac River turned out to be the best decision I could have made. All right. I like that. So can we just go back in time for a second? How'd you get to this place? You went to Cornell. And what did you study there? I went to Cornell and started out as a physics major, which turned out to be much too uh, esoteric. And hard. Uh, and hard. And transferred into the engineering college, which gave me some sort of weird, uh, uh, weird bona fides, sort of going from arts and sciences to engineering, but wound up studying operations research, applied math, and economics. Um, this was the mid-'80s. Wall Street was just beginning to sort of go through the previous financial technology boom. Um, and... 
uh, was very interested in markets. Uh, I, I, I don't think this is a funny story, but this is really a true story, that the person who really introduced me to financial markets was, uh, was your dad. Um, and that, uh, that really does go back to the full 40 years. Um, working with your dad, my father, you and I, uh, sort of thinking about financial technology, uh, computer applications in that, uh, in, in that world to equity trading, um, but ultimately made my way into the bond market uh, and joined Solomon Brothers as a summer intern in 1985 uh, and then as my first job out of college in 1987. So you worked at Solomon Brothers. Then what did you do? You, was that in London? I worked at Solomon Brothers in New York and in London, uh, and uh, it was really the sort of end of the peak of, uh, of Solomon. John Goodfriend had been on the cover of Business Week. It was a firm uh, that had really specialized in fixed income markets. Henry Kaufman, who was the head of research, was my ultimate boss. Um, but I was there at a time when Solomon Brothers decided as the last major investment bank to get into the asset management business. And they picked a number of research analysts, economists, quantitative analysts, and brought us into a new asset management division um, and really worked with the economists uh, to think about investment strategies on behalf of this new set of Solomon clients who looked, uh, looked to us to manage money. And then what happened? Um, moved ultimately to London. Um, and in the mid-90s, this was at a time when the Treasury market bid-rigging scandal um, really began to snowball, and about half a dozen of us left Solomon to join Abian Amro Bank, um, large continental European uh, commercial bank that also had uh, aspirations to build an asset management business in London. Uh, at Abian Amro and at Solomon, we specialized in two very different types of investors, very conservative central banks, funds for future generations, sovereign wealth funds, and more speculative, aggressive hedge funds. This is early 90s to mid 90s. Um, and I kept those relationships. These were clients. These were investors in our funds and in our financial products. And ultimately, after four more years at ABN AMRO, the World Bank was looking for someone to run their internal reserves. And we moved back from London, ultimately to Washington, where I became the chief investment officer for the World Bank's venture capital venture capital Did I, wait a minute wait a minute wait. so wait one girl was but one of your daughters was born in london what happened to san francisco wasn't san francisco in there somewhere in the middle of the solomon uh solomon tenure solomon had a joint venture with a uh, budding financial technology business in berkeley uh, and i went out there to handle that joint venture which was really run by uh half a dozen very bright phd economists professors at cal and we were looking at ways to quantify the risks that investors would have uh, in global fixed income portfolios. And so the, the history of my career is one of working for, ultimately starting and leading asset management businesses at Solomon, at ABN, at the World Bank, and then ultimately Potomac River. Okay. You are here because you've written, a co-authored a book with Sarah Binder, and it's called The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. And we are speaking, we are recording this interview during the week when Jerome Powell, the new Federal Reserve Chair, has given testimony to Congress. When I used to describe the Federal Reserve, I say, oh, you know, it's the U.S. Central Bank. It started in 1913 after this big collapse. And it's independent. And, you know, it's independent. And that's always what was indoctrinated in my understanding. So someone's listening to this and without sounding like a cuckoo clock about the Fed, 
Can you explain, first of all, what is the Fed's job, essentially? Boil it down. The Fed has two primary responsibilities. Uh, As the nation's central bank, indeed, uh, it is there to set monetary policy, essentially the level of interest rates, principally at the short end, but as we saw during the crisis, they can extend that uh, that term out farther. So sort of gauge the economy as given by Congress, their dual mandate uh, to maximize employment and achieve price stability uh, as undefined. Um, and secondly, they have enormous responsibility back to their inception uh, after the panic of 1907 uh, to supervise uh, and regulate uh, major money center banks in the United States. So banking supervision and setting monetary policy. Okay. Would you say that before you started doing the research for this book, I mean, when Sarah started doing the research, because clearly she was like the brains behind the operation, before you started to do that, what was your view of the Fed and independence? How did you understand it? So I, I think your conventional wisdom and I think listeners will also generally get a sense that the Fed makes monetary policy independent of uh, political pressure. The history of the central bank, as Sarah, who's uh, an esteemed uh, professor of political science at George Washington University down in D.C. and a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and I realized most of the history is economic history. And there's very little analysis recently and over the century, uh, century-long uh, history of the Fed that focuses on the politics. As we began in the financial crisis, I can tell you exactly the moment it was... Uh, 2.07 in the afternoon, September 29th, 2008, the first TARP vote uh, had failed in the House. And I think that just opened the door to a decade of research. But we just dug deep into the Fed's history, its genesis, back into the panic of 1907, uh, and, and really began to understand the relationship that Congress, that wrote and continued to revise the Federal Reserve Act has over uh, over the nation's central bank. Okay, so when you say when we say that the Fed is independent, it was created with a congressional act as you just mentioned. And the Fed chair and Fed governors are appointed by the president. Who does the Fed chair report to? So the Fed chair uh, reports to Congress and this was made explicitly clear Kate Davidson, who uh, was writing, I believe, for the Wall Street Journal at the time, asked Ben Bernanke on the day of his retirement if he had any advice for then-incoming chair Janet Yellen. And he was explicit and clear that he said, just remember, Congress is our boss. We see that in the testimony that, uh, uh, that the chair, Bernanke, Yellen, now Jay Powell, gives uh, separately to the House and the Senate. Uh, we see that in the act. Uh, The uh, reporting requirement, though appointed by the president, to be sure, confirmed by the Senate, uh, the reporting line is very clearly from the Fed to to the Congress. It wasn't always that clear. um, And back into the sort of pre-1950s Federal Reserve, there was a lot of ambiguity as to whether the the Fed existed to support uh, the fiscal and, and borrowing requirements of the executive branch. 
but in 1951, there was a f- accord between the Treasury Department and the Fed that really established the conventional reporting lines. Explain what happens um, around the Fed's relationship with the Treasury. So looking back from the financial crisis, the Fed buys a crap load of bonds, saves this system, whatever, whatever story you want to tell. But the Fed has a bunch of bonds and the Fed actually made money on its bonds for a while. So what happens to the money that the Fed makes? We digress away from the notion of Fed independence. And in the book, we describe the two institutions, the Congress and the Federal Reserve, as interdependent uh, interdependent uh, institutions. One of the, uh, I guess, arguments for an independent Fed is that there is some budget autonomy. Uh, and so the money that they make uh, as uh, as a provider of an elastic currency on the profits on the, the balance sheet, as you described, funds the entire operation. So they are not dependent, in this case, on Congress for budget authority. And when the Fed, on the regulatory side, spanks, say, Wells Fargo, right, yes. and money is collected, what happens to that money? Again, just for the general operations of the Fed? goes into the uh, the balance of, uh, of of the central bank. And, and I think you, again, you highlight the power of the purse that Congress has. Um, and this has been a long-running and bipartisan effort. We see it on the, uh, we certainly saw it on the Republican side pressuring Bernanke and Yellen. I think one of the, uh, the keys to watch for this transition is with a Republican-appointed Fed chair, Jay Powell, who served in uh, in a number of Republican administrations, will the Republican members of Congress in the House and the Senate maybe lighten up a bit uh, on some of their criticism? We haven't seen that in the first uh, the first meeting, but I think over time, conditional on the economy doing well, I think we're going to see a little less uh, combative uh, Republican conference. How does the myth of independence? illustrate itself. Let's look at the financial crisis. So tell us what happened and then say what you think should have happened if it were truly an independent body. One of the hard parts of social science research is indeed coming up with the counterfactuals. Um, So what if we had a completely walled off, totally independent central bank that was not beholden to the public or the public's agents uh, on Capitol Hill? Um, And we've tried to we've tried to explore this question a lot. Uh, In 2002, when he was uh, a governor of the board, he had not yet been uh, appointed chair, Ben Bernanke wrote a famous paper um, really thinking about the disinflation and ultimately deflationary episode in Japan. Uh, And that speech, entitled Making Sure It Doesn't Happen Here, laid out a very clear set of uh, recipes that a central bank could go through if uh, if faced with disinflation and deflation. So it's at least a, a memo, a series of recommendations. And in and around and certainly in the wake of the crisis, um, we tried to compare the actions of, at that point, Bernanke's Fed. He had gone to the White House and was reappointed initially by a Republican and then reappointed by uh, by a Democrat. Uh, Bush and Obama. Um, And he followed that course to some extent, uh, but not completely and not as aggressively. Remember, it took them three, you could even argue four rounds of quantitative easing to get the balance sheet up to full strength. Bond buying. Uh, Bond buying, the large scale asset purchase or quantitative easing. 
I think an area where most people will recognize that there has to be some interdependence is in the absence of monetary policy being able to do its complete job. Bernanke in 2002 said that you could always rely on fiscal policy. And there you need the legislature to act. An area where we see that interaction very clearly is on this interplay between fiscal and monetary policy. This is Better Off with Jill Schlesinger. We'll get back to our interview with Mark Spindell in just a minute. I know sometimes you hear these terms, fiscal policy, monetary policy. It's sort of out of our control. But what is within your control is your own financial planning needs. As a certified financial planner, what I can tell you is that the advice you get is only as good as the information that you can provide. And a lot of different investment types, whether they're human beings or their automatic investment platforms are not actually asking enough questions. And that's why I am so thrilled that Betterment is the sponsor of this program. Betterment provides personalized advice that's based on the information that you tell them. From that information, Betterment makes tailored recommendations If you're looking for tax-efficient strategies to help increase your after-tax returns, well, Betterment is all over that. And they'll show you how much your outside brokerage accounts are costing you in fees and uninvested cash. So don't worry about monetary policy and fiscal policy. You should know what it is. You don't have to freak out about it. But what you do need to do is pay attention to your own financial life. And you can do that by going to Betterment.com slash betteroff. That's Betterment.com slash BetterOff. Betterment, rethink what your money can do. And now back to our interview with Fed expert Mark Spindell. So one of your old bosses, Mohammed El Aryan, has been on this program a couple of times, and he said that the financial crisis did not have to be quite as dramatic as it was had we had a more conducive fiscal policy that was created. So yes, there was a humongous $800 billion stimulus bill, but A, it wasn't enough, and B, there should have it should have been more focused. And as a result, that is why the Fed had to come in and do all these kind of weird things that maybe it wouldn't have had to do otherwise. So, you know, I think some specific examples may be helpful. Um, Uh, Through their bond purchase program, recall that during the crisis and still today, they own uh, trillions of dollars of government debt uh, and government agency mortgage debt. In their semi-annual testimony, particularly in the House, uh, Chair Yellen uh, would sit before the chairman of that committee, Jeb Hanserling from uh, from Texas. Uh, And in one of his introductions, as he's, again, somewhat... uh, uh, critical of the chair, he talked about this notion of credit allocation, that in in what way, although it's perfectly legal, does the Fed find itself allocating credit to mortgage owners, homeowners? And he said, you know, it seems as if our central bankers have become our central planners. And I think it's that kind of pushback and threat that in the book and over the course of the hundred years, we document the dozens of legislative actions and legislative threats uh, that members of Congress have put in revising this Federal Reserve Act. And that, again, I think goes to trying to establish the counterfactual of independent versus interdependent. But what's the alternative? 
that they are suggesting? They want to go back to the gold standard? I mean, this is ridiculous. So I, I think that's a, that's another great question. And clearly 535 members of Congress have no business trying to make monetary policy. The, the history of Fed independence is really driven, and I think the conventional wisdom goes back to the inflationary 70s and 80s. That fear of hyperinflation really drives the notion of, of Fed uh, independence. However, the recent history of the financial crisis and the panic of 1907 and certainly the Great Depression, these are episodes where the Fed is not fl- fighting inflation, but they're fighting deflation. Uh, And I think what we learned in the most recent crisis, uh, I think uh, sort of burned into our our financial consciousness, is that deflation is very hard for a central bank to fight on its own. And yes, Bernanke's brilliance, uh, his creativity, Yellen's creativity got us out of this decade-long slump and handed the baton uh, to Jay, you know, with an economy that's doing very well. And we heard that from him in his uh, in his introduction. But I think parties attack the Fed because they're looking for someone to blame. Yes, yeah, scapegoat, because we don't want to do our own jobs. So what does scare you about what's going on right now? So I think... I think uh, Jay Powell has really signaled a new transition with his enthusiasm for uh, for the strength of the economy and his willingness to think about tightening and raising interest rates. And so what worries me is that having been so good at analyzing and picking out the dots, what do we have to do the next time round to make sure that we can connect those dots? And so, you know, we're, again, seeing a rise in Covlight lending. We see equity markets. Covlight, please define. Covenant light lending where, uh, you know, there's just a willingness to, to look the other way and not do the kind of due diligence that you typically see. And it's only 10 years. It's been a decade. And yet, um, you know, people think asset prices may be expensive. Um, we've seen that certainly, uh, you know, analysts looking at the level of equities. I think when interest rates were at zero... Um, when volatility was more or less at zero, um, it was very easy to make investment decisions. As interest rates begin to rise, I think all of a sudden there are some questions about asset markets that, again, go back to these pre-2007 moments. And do we have the tools in place to do the kind of bank supervision and regulation? And I see you shaking your head, and that's my concern. Shaking my head no is what I was doing. Not not yes. I'm nervous. me too. Can I'm generally nervous all the time because this is sort of like being a New York Jew. But I would say that what makes me nervous is the a one-day correction. Like, that just makes me nervous. That a one-day correction. A one-day correction is, is what we had. We had one day where the markets were down 10% from the top. That was it. And then they went, started uh, they went rising again. That kind of price action does make tend to make me nervous. Well, again, I think the investment strategies that work when interest rates are at zero and volatility is zero may not work so well when interest rates are rising and volatility is rising. Okay, so people are listening to this, and now we'll start scaring them a little bit. What do you, you know, generally, as you talk to not big investors, you know, I know that you've managed, uh, you have a hedge fund, but you're not taking any new money, but you've had an experience where you've dealt with massive institutional investors. But we're regular people. So Susan Schlesinger has a portfolio, that's my mom, what are you going to tell Susan Schlesinger about managing her portfolio as, you know, she is living on the, the money that's in that portfolio? What is the advice that you would give? So when, when I think about investment advice for large institutions or very dear friends, um, 
I think the most important thing to think about is what's the horizon that people are investing for? Our parents who may not have 30 or 40 years, uh, unfortunately, to think about an investment horizon should obviously be focused on income. Mm -hmm. um, with interest rates going up, remember, during and after the crisis, uh, many savers were very worried about uh, the low level of interest rates and how little they were earning on their fixed uh, fixed uh, income investment portfolios. So, you know, I think having uh, having a healthy uh, healthy exposure to fixed income assets protects you from the kind of volatility that you described making you nervous. For younger investors who have that long horizon, obviously, I think traditionally more exposure to equities, but. People forget that you have to eat along the way mm -hmm. and that life has a way of throwing curveballs at you. So I don't ever suggest that people are too aggressive in their, uh, uh, in their equity allocation. And again, look for diversity. And the kinds of advice I tend to give people are diverse in terms of asset class, equities and bonds, uh, diverse in terms of industry. Don't think that because you own Apple and Google, you've got a diverse portfolio. Um, and absolutely think about smaller companies where you can get uh, uh, maybe some uh, some different upside and international diversification. Okay, so let's just do a little international because you were um, a, a specialist in international bonds and currencies. And what do we need to worry about if the dollar is losing value? So one thing we have to worry about is that a, uh, a uh, diminishing dollar will tend to put upward pressure on prices, and that may... Uh, that may accelerate the rate of uh, increase in interest rates, which, as we've seen, that first shot across the bow uh, gives equities a bit of a uh, bit of a headache. Um, uh, but all of uh, all of the investors, both institutional and uh, and individuals, can think about hedging a weakening dollar by buying assets uh, abroad. They can buy. Uh, European, they could buy Asian, uh, they can buy African and Latin American or South American equities. And if the dollar does decline, uh, the rise in the corresponding other currencies will more than offset uh, that issue. So if we're investing in international mutual funds, let's say, or an international index, you don't want that to be dollar denominated. In other words, you want it to be denominated in the local currency. In Otherwise, yen, you're not doing the yen, job. In renminbi, in euros, in pesos. And again, it's not to make a specific call on a, on a region or a country. It's to say that uh, funds for future generations, your fund for your future uh, saving should have the kinds of diversification that I think we'd uh, we'd recommend. What's your favorite asset class right now, Mark? So I, I, I live in that sort of somewhat self-loathing space of I think a lot of assets are expensive. I think interest rates are going up. Uh, I think the equity market has uh, maybe seen some of its brighter days. Um, but I do like, relative to the U.S., I like owning, uh, I, I like owning a, a basket of uh, non-U.S. Uh, equities, diversified, uh, small to, uh, to medium uh, to large, uh, large scale. I think if I had to sort of think about U.S. domestic, uh, uh, domestic assets, I'd probably look at areas where technology can continue to be innovative. So let's talk about the world, though. Like, are you scared of China? Like, Mark just sent me the screener for this movie. We're going to interview these guys about, like, this China. What's the name of the movie? The China Hustle. It's freaking us out that, like, China's going to just blow up. Although, I mean, I guess with, you know, now that you have a, a chairman for life, maybe everything will be just fine. You know, I think I, I think we have been wondering and waiting for the Chinese blow up for years. I think it is a remarkably 
capitalistic, but also very opaque uh, economy. Huge. Uh, obviously, we're very dependent on the Chinese who are buying uh, and, and hold enormous amounts of, uh, of our government bonds. So we should be very careful uh, at, uh, at upsetting them. Um, but I have found over the 30 years that I have been doing this, very hard to get strong forecasts uh, on, uh, on, on the sort of near-term outlook for China. And I tend to dismiss the more uh, disastrous scenarios. They have a lot of people. Uh, there is going to be, I think, continued urbanization. To be sure, it's, uh, you know, it's, uh, it's a vital, as is other, uh, other uh, sort of components of the developing world, the emerging markets. Three biggest risks to investors right now. One is that interest rates rise faster than expected. Okay, and let's just say sort of inflation slash interest rates rise faster than expected. That's known, right? That's a known risk that's out there. What is unknown that is important to understand? Having lived in Washington for the last 20 years and written a book about uh, the politicization of our seemingly independent central bank, I would say we have we have enormous problems in the U.S. We have health care issues. We have. Uh, we have savings issues, and I believe we need a functional federal government to address these issues. I think the kinds of polarization uh, that we've seen on almost everything uh, between the parties, I think the risk is that we just don't get around to solving the unfunded liabilities in, in health care, in retirement. That, to me, is more of a domestic risk than the kind of international risks that people focus on. I think the second thing, which sort of goes to your point, is, you know, have we bred over the last decade a complacency, a dependency on a central bank, uh, on, uh, on a government really not uh, sort of making some tough decisions, and that created the kind of free money, real interest rates are essentially still very low, uh, and, uh, you know, in this kind of party polarization, it's difficult to get real solutions. Is there any sort of like weird leveraging going on that worries you that like hedge funds, institutional investors have all piled into the same trade and then once they all get out at the same time, we get 2,000 point Dow drops or anything like that? Is there something like that that's going on under the surface that someone like you would see but the rest of the ordinary investing public might not? You know, I have uh, the benefit of the, the volatility experience a month ago, which I think reminded people that... There's a lot of short volatility trades, the explicit and the implicit. Uh, I think, uh, you know, as much as I uh, appreciate and believe in the indexation and passive investing, I think it created an environment where when the markets were rallying, people had to buy more. When the markets were selling off, people were selling. And so there was just a constant feeding of this short vol trade. And so... Uh, although it's been upsetting and sort of watching the, uh, the, the particular blowups of certain leveraged short volatility positions, I think getting back to an environment, as I said, where interest rates are non-zero and where there is some uh, more normal levels of risk in the market, uh, I think will create some more opportunities for, uh, for people to, uh, to monetize. Monetize. There's, there's a great phrase that nobody would use. <laughs> Dork you are. So, Mark, we started the program with your best financial decision, which was actually starting your hedge fund, Potomac River Capital. Uh, what's your worst financial decision or career decision? You could do either one. I- I'll give you uh, a bonus. So I think the, uh, the, the politics of Brexit were, for me, particularly, uh, particularly confusing. Um, and as much as I said earlier that you really try to be agnostic as a fiduciary and manager of money, I think it was very hard to 
I lived in England for seven years. My older daughter, as you know, was born there. I have a strong connection to people and the place. Uh, and I just did not see the kind of rise in nationalism and anti-Europeanism uh, sort of rising uh, in, uh, in, in that moment. It uh, remains a difficult negotiation that uh, the U.K. is having. But with, did you lose money? Did you bet against that? What happened? I, I, you know, I took positions in that particular case that, uh, that were not particularly helped by the Brexit decision. <laughs> You're being so careful. All right, I'm done with you. Uh, wh- who's the best skier in the family still? My sister. Of course. Who's the best cook in the family? I think I am. Yes, you are. Exactly. Uh, Who makes the best chocolate cake in the family? My mother. Exactly. Uh, Who is the most patient in the family? My father. Correct. Uh, (laughs) Who is the best looking in in our families? You are. My mother, duh. <laughs> my sister, my mother. Mark Spindell, author, co-author of The Myth of Independence, How Congress Governs the Federal Reserve. Thanks for playing with me today. You're very welcome, and, and thank you very much for, uh, for having me. Well, that's it. That's the show. Thank you so much to Mark Spindell. Remember, you can get new episodes of Better Off every Tuesday and Thursday. Just go subscribe anywhere you get your podcasts. Our music is composed by Joel Goodman. We're distributed by Cadence 13. Our executive producer is Mark Talercio, and we are sponsored by Betterment. See you next week.